Chapter 7 of Esther Reed's Namesake. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Esther Reed's Namesake by Pansy. Chapter 7 Scruples. Well, said Faith Farnham, with a discontented little laugh, if you simply won't do anything that I want, I may as well go. But I must say, my beloved Esther Reed Randall, that for a girl who can persistently, not to say obstinately, stand in her own light, I think you will take the prize. It was Sunday afternoon, and the two girls were on Mrs. Victor's side porch, which was deserted save for them. The various members of the household were busy with their after-dinner naps, with the exception of Selma, the high school girl, who had, a short time before, gone for what she called a Sunday tramp with one of her schoolmates. Esther sat back in one of the large porch rockers in as relaxed a position as her overwrought nerves would permit. Although it was still early in the afternoon, her duties in the Victor kitchen were done for the day, the presence of guests who must take the two o'clock train having necessitated an early dinner. She looked tired with a sort of weariness that the easy chair and the sweet rose-perfumed air of the porch did not touch. Her friend regarded her with ill-concealed impatience, and presently broke forth again. Esther, what is the use in being so absurd? You know you need the rest that this would be to you. You look tired to death, and the air up there among the pines and the eucalyptus trees is something to remember. Then we shall have a lovely little spread on the rocks, and you needn't trouble to take a single thing. I had my basket packed before I came out, with luncheon enough for six. Besides, the boys are going to order oysters and coffee for us from the hotel. You will have the comfort once more of eating a repast that you haven't planned and got ready yourself. I should think that alone would be quite a treat. Last summer vacation I had to think up Sunday evening lunches for the whole family, and it nearly gave me nervous prostration. And then, Esther, the drive home by moonlight will be simply entrancing tonight. It's a full moon, you know. You will be all rested up for your next week's work. Come, do go, dear, just to please me. Esther sat straighter in her chair and ran her fingers through her fluffy hair, lifting it back from her forehead in a way she had when tired, and also when annoyed. I wish you wouldn't, Faith, she said, letting a little of her annoyance creep into her tone. I told you at the first that I never went on Sunday frolics, and I thought you understood me. Faith made an impatient movement. It isn't a frolic, she said. Why will you be so unreasonable? It will be as decorous and well-managed a Sunday crowd as was ever planned. Why, there are three, four church members in it, and two of them are minister's daughters, or daughter and son. What more do you want? I don't want anything of any of them except to be left alone. If they were all ministers, what difference do you suppose that would make to me? I tell you, I don't believe in such ways of spending Sundays, and although I live in a little backwards town where the people are ignorant enough, goodness knows, I never knew the church members there to get up Sunday picnics or Sunday rides or anything of the sort. They leave all that to the people who don't pretend to have any religion. It was then that Faith rose up from her hassock with a determined air. Well, she said, I am sorry you persist in looking at it in that light. I felt like urging because I thought you really needed the rest that it would give you, and Professor Langham said he was sure you did. He is going, by the way, and so is Mr. Gilman. We shall be a well-guarded crowd, you see. I tell you what, Esther, if I were you, I would give up working at that religion of yours while you are away from home. 
You take it too hard. It is worse than the name a great deal. Blanche now simply amuses me with her spasmodic efforts at harmonizing her old life with the new. But you, my dear, actually tire me. Esther's irritation had now passed beyond her control. I wish you would let my religion alone, she said with energy. It may not be of any account to you, but such as it is it belongs to me, and I do not care to have it dragged out every little while for discussion. I am sure I don't obtrude it on you. That is just where you are mistaken, my child. You do. It is what I am complaining of this very minute. Or rather, you do worse than that. You obtrude it upon yourself. It is just that which is keeping you from taking a much-needed drive into the country and getting rest and inspiration for the entire week. I assure you, if I were going to indulge in any religion, which may heaven forbid, I should take Blanche's instead of yours, because hers doesn't do her or anybody else any harm, while yours serves to make you more or less miserable most of the time. Never mind, dear, forgive me, I ought not to have said that. You can't help it, I presume. You were born that way. I must go this minute. I didn't think it was so late. I don't suppose there is any hope that if we should drive around this way in a half hour or less, you might have reconsidered? Oh, poor child. I won't say another word. Only good-bye. Esther sat very still after her guest had gone. There were books and papers on the chair beside her that she had brought out to read, but she did not read. Her Bible was among them. She had brought it with the feeling that she might study her lesson for the next Sunday, but she had not opened it. As she looked at it, her lip curled contemptuously. The contempt was not for the Bible. She was not quite sure what it was for, only... Professor Langham was the Bible teacher, and it seemed that he had nothing better to do with his Sunday afternoons than to drive to Rock Springs with a company of his students. She pushed back her chair until the heavy vines shielded her entirely from passers-by, and gave herself up to what she would have called thinking. In reality, it was a desultory review of her uneventful, unsatisfactory, and some of the time distinctly unhappy life. Not only that, but she obliged her miserable self to admit that she had made those about her more or less unhappy. She could recall innumerable instances in which the look of perplexity and undoubted anxiety on her father's face had been called up by some outburst of hers. As for her poor mother, had she not practically spent her life in trying to make life more comfortable, or at least more tolerable, for her one daughter? And how had the daughter repaid her? How she had chafed under the restrictions of poverty, and under all the limitations of her little narrowed life. Above all, how persistently intolerant she had been of Aunt Sarah, her mother's own sister. It was of no use to tell herself such a state of things had been the necessary outcome of Aunt Sarah's disposition. That thought had ceased to comfort her when she remembered how patiently her mother and father had borne with that same disposition. Then, when the sudden opportunity had come to her for a broadened life and association with books and students and teachers, how miserable she had made herself over the question of clothes! What heroic sacrifices she had permitted on the part of that dear mother, and then had wept over them in a secrecy that could not be kept secret, partly because the sacrifices had to be made, but more, oh, a great deal more, she was sure, because the result was so pitiful. It had required courage to come to college with a wardrobe as limited as hers. For the same reason it required daily courage to stay there, yet the college girl was ashamed that this was so. 
her cheeks burned over the memory of certain social functions with which she had declined to be associated, and had allowed the girls to think that it was because of conscientious scruples, yet the real reason had been nothing to wear. And yet conscientious scruples were among her grievances. They were continually cropping out, until it seemed to this discouraged soul that there was no social life left for her. Cards and dancing appeared to be the chief, almost the only entertainments offered at ordinary social functions, it being taken as a matter of course that one or the other would satisfy all tastes. Esther had accepted such invitations a number of times, with the result that she had felt more lonely and out of place than at any other time since she left home. Apparently she was the only girl with scruples, and the anxious efforts of her young hostess to entertain her, together with the surprise of every one with whom she came in contact, that she neither danced nor played cards, so annoyed the girl that she had almost resolved to turn recluse rather than put herself in the way of such embarrassments. Worse than the astonishment of the many had been the efforts of the few to aid her. "'It's an awfully easy game,' volunteered a good-natured freshman, who had stood near her for some time, evidently pitying her loneliness. "'If you like to take a hand, I can show you in five minutes how the thing goes. It really isn't much more complicated than the tit-tat-toe of our childhood. Didn't you enjoy tit-tat-toe once upon a time?' "'Very much,' she said, smiling. "'Still, I think I will not renew my childhood to-night.' "'I wish you would, though,' he had said heartily. "'It's great fun when you once get a hold of it, "'and things seem to be pretty slow here to-night "'for the people who neither dance nor play cards.' She had resisted his kindness with a positiveness that was almost rudeness, but she had not said anything about scruples. The reason was that she was ashamed of her scruples.' and then she was ashamed of herself for being ashamed of them. She had written home about that evening's experience in a way that caused her mother and father to sit long over the dying coals in the study grate. I don't think I shall accept any more social invitations, so the letter ran. I haven't time for them, nor gowns for that matter. Sometimes I feel like a queer little nun in my one good dress that has to do duty on all occasions. Still, to be honest, it isn't so much the time, though that is very scarce, nor the gowns, though they are scarcer, as the question what I shall do with myself. How should you feel, mother, to be the only girl in a large company, who neither danced, nor played whist, nor euchre, or any of the various games that are played with cards? Rather, how did you feel when you were a girl and had such experiences? You have never told me about them, or didn't you have them? Perhaps the young people of your day were not limited to one or the other of these amusements, as they seem now to be. I cannot imagine you standing around awkwardly, as I do, your main chance for conversation being, No, thank you, I don't play cards. Thank you very much, but I think I will not take a lesson tonight. No, thanks, I don't dance. Oh, no, I have never even made the attempt. You are very kind, but I will not undertake it this time. I am not in a dancing mood." That is, in all honesty, the situation here. I have not exaggerated one bit. Out of the entire company I seem to be marked as the girl with scruples. Occasionally I am forced to the wall and it becomes necessary to attempt an explanation, and that is the most embarrassing of all, for I am ashamed of my scruples. On reflection I find that they are not mine at all, but are second-hand. Honestly, mother, father, 
I find that I do not at this moment know one satisfactory reason why I should not spend an occasional evening playing a game of cards with my friends. As I watch the others, I find that the game looks quite as sensible to me, and as innocent, as the old-fashioned What is my thought like, or any of those games with which we used to try to make Joram Pratt and others of his kind believe that they had any thoughts. Dancing now is different. I can see for myself how far from true refinement it is, even in its milder exhibitions. Every time I look on, I see girls, good sweet girls, allow in the dance attentions that under any other conditions would be considered insulting, and I have sufficient imagination, as well as sufficient knowledge of the world, to feel sure, even without much thought, that the trend of the amusement is downward. In fact, there are girls, a few of them, in this very college, whose ways of talking about dances that they have attended is enough to make one who has been brought up by a careful mother blush for them. I have reached the conclusion that the natural instinct of purity which every true girl has would lead her to shrink instinctively from that amusement as we see it in society today, provided her young girlhood had been held from all familiarity with it. But cards are different. When I tried to think out my objections to them for some of the girls who questioned me, I found that my most vivid impression in regard to them was based on the fact that you, father, took from me in haste and in evident dismay that pack of cards which our summer boarder left in his room and burned them in the grate as fast as the flames could be made to devour them. That was the summer I was fourteen. I remember I got the impression, from your manner rather than your words, that they were not fit for respectable people to touch. But that, of course, is rather a slender basis for a logical argument. It is true that I am familiar with the common objections to games of chance, but used in social circles for an hour's entertainment, such objections do not seem to apply. Don't be frightened, father. I have not been playing cards. I have too vivid a remembrance of your face as you poked that glowing mass in the grate to make it burn the faster, to care to venture on the amusement, and I have steadily declined to be shown how but I stand quite alone, and am thought peculiar and narrow and ignorant, which last I am, and please, ma'am and sir, I should like to be instructed. Such was the message that kept father and mother sitting late in the little study. Not that they said much, but they were so consciously thinking the same thoughts, that when Mr. Randall broke the silence, he spoke the very words that his wife expected. To help people to be really acquainted with God, Helen, that was to have been my work in the world. Have I signally failed with my own daughter? Our Esther is surely the Lord's own, but... She is a Christian, said his wife, but she is, like too many of us, satisfied with following afar off. Sometimes I think if her mother... Her voice broke at that, and the missionary bent downward and kissed the tears from the face of his bride of twenty years as he said, God never gave to any girl a better mother than ours has, Helen, you must be just even to yourself. And you and I must remember that God himself has to be the teacher of some lessons. All that we can do is to ask him to reveal himself to her in his time. I confess that I sometimes fear lest in our anxiety for her mental development we have sent her into a place of peculiar temptation. It seemed a direct answer to our prayer for guidance, murmured the mother, and the father caught at the comfort in her words. So it did, Helen, and so it was, and you and I must trust him. I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from evil. He can do it. 
with a sudden leap of thought of which mothers are capable, Mrs. Randall's next words were, I am afraid the poor child feels keenly the contrast between herself and others in the matter of clothes. She has nothing really nice. I would not worry about that, said the father sturdily. She knew all the limitations when she went. Trials of that sort will not injure her permanently. But the mother, being a mother, though she said no more, wished with all her heart that she could contrive one more good dress for the child. End of chapter 7 Recording by Tricia G.